The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. This is episode number 178. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatments can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a proven residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with an evidence-based step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 1-866-231-5924. Today's episode will be an interview with a gentleman named Aaron Garcia. Aaron Garcia is an evangelist, international speaker, best-selling author of the book Coincidence or God, and number one bestseller of his newest book, Burn Notice. He's the founder of SOS Ministries, Inc., a nonprofit that is dedicated to improving the community and reaching the lost in the streets. Aaron is known for creating multiple movements such as the Broadway Bash, Washington Family Hope Center, and United at the Stadium. He travels all over the globe, specifically to unreached countries where the gospel isn't preached, sharing his story and seeing people come to Christ. Aaron, his wife, and three children all reside in Neosho, Missouri. Without further ado, let's talk to Aaron Garcia. Aaron Garcia, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to meet you. Well, and I really thank you. And I really appreciate, you know, people who have a background such as yours who are willing to share their story, because I think it's the stories that we tell on this podcast that resonate with people. And I always figure if just one person hears your story and can relate to you, you know, maybe they'll reach out for hope. So thank you for being willing to do that. Absolutely. So tell me, in the kind of way we usually do it here on the podcast, how did you get started down the road to addiction? Sure. So my story really starts at age 16. Um, I grew up in a good Christian home. Uh, I came from some parents who, you know, wanted what was best for me. They wanted me to make A's and B's. I was involved in sports and all kinds of different things. But at age 16, my parents wanted to purchase my first vehicle for me. And I'll never forget, it was a Toyota Tercel. So if you had to think of a Toyota Tercel, it's kind of like a Prius nowadays. It was a small little cherry red uh, vehicle. But what was best was it was all mine. And my parents said, well, as long as you pay for the insurance and the gasoline, you know, we'll, we'll purchase your first vehicle. Well, what happened was that as I had this vehicle, I started understanding I had independence. And people kind of latched on to that independence. They wanted what I had to represent, which was freedom, uh, because I was 16 years of age. And at, and at that time, you know, I'm 38 now, there's not a lot of kids who either parents had enough money to buy the vehicle for them or even had was of age to to have a vehicle. And so I bought my first or my parents bought my first vehicle for me. Uh, it was that Toyota Tercel. And I started my mind began to change. I started thinking things were about popularity 
and, and being recognized and all those different things. But what I started to understand was that bad people came with all that independence. And when I was 16 years of age, I actually was invited to this house. And at this house, there were, uh, I'll never forget that there was drapes over the house, like sheets over the windows when we were coming up to the front door. And you know that intuition you have, like, you know, something's not right. This does not look good. Yeah. <laughs> like if there was like a wrong way sign, it should have been placed right on the front door. But my buddy said to me, he said, whatever happens here tonight, you don't repeat or, or tell anybody about what happens. Right. Aaron, what part of the country did you grow up in? Where, are, where were you at this point? Uh, I live in Joplin, Missouri. I've been born and raised here. So Joplin is the very center of the United States. Most people know about the tornado that came through here back in 2011. Okay. So it was in Joplin, Missouri, where all this was taking place. And so I walked to the front door, and the people there were very nice. Uh, they were playing card games, kind of hanging out. The lights were dim. And they were all snorting a substance off of, this, off of these, these mirrors. And they were all using methamphetamines in this, in this household. My buddy, who was using, was telling them not to give me the drugs, but after my curiosity kept taking over, they ended up giving me the drugs anyway. And I'm not a smoker, but I went through like a whole pack of cigarettes in like 30 minutes. And I rushed myself to the bathroom and I vomited in the toilet because, you know, my mind was just racing. But I was having flights of ideas and I thought this was just a really awesome drug is what I thought. Uh, before that, I actually was using a little bit of marijuana, a little bit of alcohol, but I didn't start getting into drugs until uh, I was age, uh, age 16. So I started using drugs uh, experimentally. I was using them basically maybe on the weekends. Uh, I was hanging out with friends. We go out all weekend long. And then, you know, during the week, we kind of go to school. My behavior began to change, though. I started uh, skipping class. And my, my relationship with my parents started changing. And I, I became defiant. I didn't want to do the things that my parents wanted me to do. I didn't want to do my schoolwork like I used to want to. And so what happened was is that more wrong motives came into my life. And I, at age 16, ran away from home for the first time. And my parents had called the police on me. They knew that I was hanging out at friends' houses. They knew the friends that I was kind of hanging out with at the time. And the police came down the steps of my friend's house where I was hanging out at to hide out. And they handcuffed me down there. Uh, they took me to juvenile detention. I've, and I was a kid. He was, I was never in trouble whatsoever. And, you know, they put me into a cell. I remember I walked down the cell block, and there, it was completely pitch black in that place. Uh, they turned the lights on just to walk me down the hallway, but then they turned the lights out, and it was just pitch black. And there was all these men who were chattering through the, through the walls, and they were, you know, calling me all kinds of names. They were stirring me up. And I started having fear in my heart. I started becoming uh, intimidated. I was, I was, you know, scared of, of where my life was already going. I, you know, I've never been in jail before. Why would you go? Why would they put you in jail? I mean, because well, because I, of suspected drug use or. Well, luckily they didn't get me for drug use whatsoever. But what happens is when you're age 16 in the state of Missouri, they had to take you down to juvenile detention overnight and then kind of work out the kinks between you and the parents. That way you don't just, you know, they drop you back off of your parents and then, and then you run away again. Wow. So they, they, they took me to juvenile detention, I guess, as like a punishment. And uh, so, yeah, so you went to juvenile detention. That's when 
me and my parents, we started butting heads. We really were not getting along after that. My parents came back the next day at the juvenile detention to pick me up. And then they took me home. I didn't say anything the entire way home. And uh, you would think that that would be the end. Like that, I would change my life. I would know that I was going down the wrong path. I was skipping class. Well, there was a rumor going around the classroom, around the school actually. And where I went, I went to Joplin High School and there was 2000 students that went to this, this high school. So it's a very large high school, freshman all the way to senior. And there was a rumor going around the school that, that someone was going to blow the school up on May 5th. Now, this is right after the Columbine shooting. So I, got, I want to give you that perspective of understanding how um, recent the events were and how serious the events were. So the Columbine shooting had just happened. We heard a rumor that someone was going to blow the school up on May 5th. And through my drug-induced mind, I thought during sixth hour, it would be funny to write a bomb threat on a desk that said I was going to blow the school up on May 5th. And I wrote it in pencil. I should have erased it, but I was so again, drug induced in my mind. I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't comprehend that I needed to erase that, that message. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, Aaron. I'm like, Oh no. Okay. So, so I completely forgot about it. Right. So the next day in, in first hour, I skipped class. I went and smoked some pot with some friends, went, you know, thought, you know, hanging out with some more friends. And uh, I came back to second hour and was study hall. So I'm sitting at the back of study hall and I'm thinking sleep. I just want to sleep. Uh, you know, I don't want to do any schoolwork or anything like that. And there's a, a principal's note came into the classroom and they called me to the front and they said, Aaron, the principal wants to see you. And so I thought, you know, skipping class, you know, maybe they found some, some drugs in my locker. I don't know, something like that. And so I'll never forget, I was walking down the hallway and I turned the corner towards the principal's office and all the principal's offices have windows. So you can see inside the office all the way through. And when I turned the corner, it was like the entire Joplin police department was set up in, in the principal's office. And my mom was in the corner with the principal with her arms crossed and just the most infuriated look on her face with her arms crossed that I'd ever seen. And I was wondering, why is my mom here? Why are there so many police officers here? And I sit down, the principal sits me down. They, they close the door behind me. They say, Aaron, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place right now. And I was like, what are you talking about? He says, what did you do yesterday? And I said, well, and I try to calculate everything I was doing. And it was like, it hit me. And I wrote that, that message on that desk. He said, someone in seventh hour saw the message on the desk and turned it into us. And I, I basically admitted to the, to the bomb threat on this desk. It wasn't a verbal, but it was, it was a message written in pencil. And so they were doing some talking and the prosecuting attorneys there wanted to make a, make a, a spectacle of me. And they wanted to put me away in jail for one year. Oh my God. And you're still yeah. 16 years old. I, yeah, I'm just, I'm almost 17 at this time. I'm, you know, still a 16 year old boy, oh never God. gotten any trouble besides that runaway, you know, and uh, you, there, there's so much emotions that happen during that time where you're just, your mind is just turning. Like, how do I back out of this one? And my mom is like in tears, like she's just crying and the principals are just shaking their heads at me. And so that they come in, they handcuff me. And wouldn't you know, the bell rang for the next hour in the high school whenever they were walking me out into the hallway. 
And so everybody saw Aaron Garcia being handcuffed and walked by police officers out of the building. And everyone was like whispering, Aaron, what's going on? What happened? Like nobody had a clue. And they put me into the, the, the van of, of the police department van. And I'll, I, I felt like when I was in the van, I was looking at the, the handle of the, of the door and I wanted to jump. I just wanted to get out because it was like one of those nightmares that had come to life. So they take me down downtown. They take me into the city jail. Now I'm 16, but they got me in the city jail now. Now they got me myself because I'm, I'm 16. I'm, I'm still a young boy and they couldn't put me with adults and things like that. So for two weeks, they left me in the cell by myself. I had to make statements. I had to hire a lawyer. Uh, it cost me like $10,000 in lawyer fees. I had to do 200 hours of community service, but by the grace of God, they, 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 my lawyer got it from what would have been like a bomb threat to a verbal assault, just a misdemeanor that was not going to be permanently on my record. So that right there alone would, should cease anybody from that kind of behavior and that drug addiction. There should, there, there could have been a wake up call, but not, huh? Yep. But not. And so, I did momentarily put drugs off to the side, but you know, I went through high school probably another year or so. And then I barely graduated by the skin of my teeth. I was still kind of skipping class, still hanging out with people like partying like alcohol and a little bit of marijuana. But I I kind of put the hard drugs off the methamphetamines. I was using LSD. I'd use cocaine. I, I was using all those different drugs in different settings with different people. So after high school, my parents wanted me to go to college and me being the the still immature kid that I was, I just didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to do the things that my parents wanted me to do because we, our relationship still was not a hundred percent. So I was working some dead end jobs. I was working at some restaurants and I, you know, I met some people and I met this guy and he said, uh, Aaron, I want, I'd like for you to come to my house and hang out one of these nights and, uh, and so that next week, I made the decision to go to this guy's house. And I figured, you know, a hangout spot, maybe, you know, maybe a little bit of alcohol or, you know, some girls would be there and different things like that. So I was excited to get over to this house. And I opened the door to this house. It was a duplex. And it was on a main road, a fairly main road with lots of traffic. And it was a duplex. And his room was downstairs into a basement. And down in this basement, there was a bedroom. There was a living room. Uh, there was a bar uh, right in front of the, the bathroom. And so he invited me down the stairs. And as I'm walking down the stairs, the carpet was red. Walking down these stairs. Very, very different, right? Like bright, bright red. And then the furniture downstairs was black. And I called it the devil's den. Because I felt like it was the exact place where the enemy would stay. And so I turned the corner of this devil's den and sure enough, everyone down there was using methamphetamines. Wow. They were smoking on their pipes. Some were shooting up. Others were, were snorting lines off the, off the, off the mirror. And he invited me over to the bar, which is the very far distant part of the downstairs. And again, that intuition of I'm in the wrong place. I should not be here. But me being the naive kid that I am just fell right back into my addiction. Wow. And you're 17 and, now, right? Yeah, I was actually uh, probably at this time 18. 18, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, because I graduated high school, kind of working a little bit. Uh, so 
the place was a drug house. I found out it, at first, you know, mom was upstairs, sister was upstairs. Mom was an addict. Sister was an alcoholic. And then he was, uh, he was an addict, a uh, meth addict. So some time went on. We were hanging out. We were having such a good time. We were using drugs. We were having so much chemistry, me and this guy. And he asked me to move into this house. And this would be kind of the turning point of my life where I, I had to make the decision. Was I going to just continue living the life I was living, working some dead end jobs, or was I going to move into a drug house? And me being again, drug induced was like, yeah, let's, let's move in together. Like that sounds amazing. And so I went and grabbed all my stuff. I moved in and it would be probably the darkest moments of my life. Not only was this a drug house, but there were manufacturing methamphetamines as well. Oh, okay. So there were, there were cooks in this place. Uh, we were connected to other cocaine dealers and we're not talking about small fry cocaine dealers here. We're talking about men who were moving large amounts of weight, kilos of cocaine. And, at first drugs were fun. Like I was having a blast, right? I was, I was using drugs. They, they promoted me to started dealing drugs. I was manipulating people. I was prideful. I'd make people do what I wanted them to do. I, I could get any girl I wanted to because I was moving up in the ranks as a drug dealer. And I was becoming one of the drug, largest drug dealers in Joplin, Missouri at the time. We were moving to different houses. We were, we were manufacturing, we were, uh, uh, you know, trading methamphetamines for cocaine because you see, we were carrying some of the best products. We had pure methamphetamines. We didn't, we didn't cut our drugs. We didn't try to make uh, more money. We wanted more power. So that means we had to have more powerful drugs. And I was getting connected to some high end drug dealers. They, they liked me. Uh, we had again, good chemistry. We, they could trust me when you get into this kind of environment, there's not a lot of people that you trust. Because at any point in time, if you get busted, we're talking years, if not decades, that you're going to be put away for the amount of, of uh, drugs that you had and the manufacturing. Uh, I believe in the state of Missouri, it's 25 years of life, life mm. if you get caught, caught with a meth house. Wow. Yeah. Or a lab, I mean. Yeah. So um, everything was fun. I was having a blast. I was selling drugs. I had money. I had all kinds of women that wanted to be with me. I had men that wanted to be me. So, so, uh, you know, from, from a worldly type view, you, you find yourself as successful. Like this is the life I'm supposed to live. I'm, I'm having fun. I'm having, you know, all these, these worldly things at my fingertips. But one night we went to this house about 20 minutes away uh, at nighttime. And it was his uncle's house, one of the one of the manufacturer's uncle's house. And he was a drug. What's crazy is that you have drug addicts who have family members who are drug addicts. It's almost like a generational curse. Yeah. And, yep. and we, so it's just like, yeah, oh. we've seen that before. So often, I mean, not always, but we've definitely seen it before where the father or the mother is either an alcoholic or an addict. So, yeah, I get that. Yeah. And so he, we were, we were cooking out of his house down in the basement of his house. So I was like the cleaner, if you will. So I would clean all the, all the utensils, all the flasks, all the different things that need to be cleaned beforehand and afterhand. So, uh, but this evening drugs that used to be fun for me, something came over me and, and I can't really tell you what it was. I think to this date, I believe that I became possessed is what I believe, but I went from having fun and enjoying myself 
never having any paranoia or anything like that. And like something came over me and I thought the police were there and I thought that everyone was out to get me. I, I don't know how to explain it because it happened in like an instant. And it you're still like doing gra- drugs in addition to selling them and making them, right? You're still doing the drugs. Absolutely. So even when you're, even when you're manufacturing methamphetamines, the fumes in the air will get you high. So, uh, so yeah, I was using and I was inhaling the fumes. And, but the, the problem is that I never had this issue before. I was having fun. And then all of a sudden, bam, this evening I freaked out. So they, they're scrambling. They don't know what's going on. Why is Aaron talking about the police are here? They're outside. Why is he not, you know, why don't someone just shut him up is what they were saying. So they made one of the girls get me in the, in my car and basically drive me to my house, back to my house, get me out of that environment. They can't handle it because it's very intense when you're in this moment, because at any point in time, police could kick down the door. Um, all you need is an informant or someone to, to, to say something to, you know. So uh, we, we pulled into this, this flying J, this pilot uh, truck stop. And I thought that everybody that crossed across my vehicle was a police officer or, you know, an informant or anything like that. I, I was just freaked out. I even thought my driver was, was undercover. I mean, it was just this intense fear that I'd never had before. And so she drew me back, drove me back to my house. Well, the next day, everyone came over to my house and was questioning me. Why are you thinking like this? What's, because again, you're dealing with some high-end drug dealers. It's like, okay, what's the problem? I mean, are you, are you, um, you know, are you guilty of something? Are you, you know, are you talking to the police behind our backs? So not only am I having paranoia and fear in my heart, but I'm having people question me at the same time. And I'm having to basically, uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, they're paranoid and fearful now of you. So they get to add their paranoia onto your paranoia. And uh... it's like everyone's freaking out on everybody. So it, it was just, it was chaotic. So this went on for months. Now, and I lived. Aaron, when you say but... your house, do you mean like back with your parents or you had your own house? Where you no, lived? the devil's den. I oh, the devil's, the devil's den. den. Okay, that was your house. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. Yep. That was my house that I was living in currently uh, after I'd moved out of my parents' house and into this house. So my mind was not right. Uh, I I was no longer having fun with drugs. And I remember there was a moment where I went to my parents. It was my grandma's birthday party. And this was kind of an eye opener for my family because no one really knew what Aaron was doing. You know, Aaron just wasn't around like he used to be. And I went to my grandmother's uh, birthday party and there was all my family members there. And we were in the back room and I just kept hearing my, my family talk about me. I I thought they were like saying they're going to call the police and all kinds of different things. And so I ran out of that back room and I ran into the living room where everybody was sitting and, and they were getting ready to, you know, sing happy birthday and cut the cake and all that. And I said, you're all against me. You're all after me. I said, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. Like those were my words. And everyone's like, uh, what are you talking about? And so I raced out the front door while my father chased me out the front door. And so I'm, 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 you know, I'm like almost jogging. I'm, I'm fast pacing, walking down the street. And I told my dad, I said, I'm never coming back. You'll never see your son again. And I'd never seen my dad cry before, wow. like ever. And he just, he just lost it. I mean, he just started to ball. Like the, 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 the idea that you're never going to see your son again, just really shook him. 
And it was the moment I knew I was starting to, my addiction was pouring over into my family. It was starting not only to hurt me, but it was hurting my family. And he said, well, let me at least give you a ride back to your house. He knew then that I was on drugs. My family then knew I was on drugs. And uh, so he drove me back to the drug house, dropped me off. And I fell right back into my addiction and it continued. It did not stop. I lost weight. I lost quite a bit of weight over time. See, the drugs were not only, um, I was not just using to get high, but it was making me malnourished. I wasn't eating like I should. I was, I had sores all over my face from picking and different things like that. Again, cause drugs weren't fun for me anymore. They were, they were, uh, it was like a vice. It was becoming just this torture chamber for me. Hmm. And I, I tried committing myself into a psych ward and all the drug dealers kept putting drugs in my face saying, you don't need that. Here's what you need. I mean, insanity Yeah, is really what it was. So what was, what was your wake up call? What was your point of no return? So the point of no return came whenever I was in the devil's den and the place was always full of people like constant drug induced people who were using, no one was sleeping. Everyone was just trying to get high. And I was in the middle of the devil's den. Someone had borrowed my car to go make a drug deal. And I was in this place and it was empty. And there was this point of my life where I knew that I knew that I knew that I was at rock bottom. Like there was no doubt in my mind. I said, I'm either going to die here. uh, I'm either going to be put away in prison for life. And that was the two things that just kept circulating through my brain. I, I just knew that there was no way out point of no return, literally. So something supernatural, and this is what I want people to hear because this is something that, you don't hear a whole lot. I mean, you do hear some stories like this, but it's just such a powerful moment where this weight, like it almost came up over my shoulders and I didn't know God at the time. You know, my parents, we kind of went to church when I was younger, but I was never involved. I never really cared. I just doodled in the back and I didn't know God, but something came over me in the middle of this drug house. And these words came out of my mouth. I said, God, If you're real, and I got tears just streaming in my eyes. I said, if you're real, I need you to come into my life and I need you to change it forever. And it would be the the one sentence prayer that I would say. So three days passed. I I knew it was three days, but I, I didn't know if I was using, I didn't know if I was getting high, but I knew it was three days. And I woke up out of this amnesia after saying this prayer And the people that invited me into the devil's den were pointing their finger in my face and they were enraged. And they said, get out of here. They said, you don't belong here anymore. And I'm sitting there going, where am I supposed to go? I'm homeless. Like I don't have any, I can't go home. My parents will never accept me there, you know? Yeah. And they said, it doesn't matter. You don't belong here. And like all the people, all the drug addicts were there. It was a very embarrassing moment. And I'll never forget, I had of my life, this powerful drug dealer, I had a trash bag of my life. And I threw the trash bag over my shoulder. I was sobbing. And it's funny to me now because I'm going, wait, I asked to get out of this situation. And now I'm being thrown out of this situation. And and now I don't want to leave. That's right. It and is, they basically what they were saying was truth. You don't belong there. And you didn't belong there. And you or you kind of sort of knew it almost maybe. Yeah. Yeah. 
You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcanonojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And so I, I got in my car and there was something inside my car that said, Aaron, go home. You'll find safety there. And so I pulled up my mom's front door. I went back to my parents' house. I showed up at the front door. I rang the doorbell and my mom answers the door and she didn't even recognize her own son. And I said, mom, it's me. Like, let me in. And she just gasped. I mean, she could not believe the, 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 um, what I was, the situation I was in, I was just in a bad spot. I didn't even look healthy. I was malnourished. I was, I was, she called me a, uh, a walking corpse. Mm. That's what she called me. Mm -hmm. So I went to sit down in my parents' couch. I'd been up for like a week on drugs. I mean, I was hallucinating. I was beyond all repair. And my mom, and I asked my mom if I could move back in. And she said, absolutely not. Look at the condition you're in. You need rehab. You need, you need this, that, and this, right? And I'm, I'm hallucinating. I'm not really right in my mind. I don't even know what's going on. I don't even know how I got to my parents' house. And my dad's in the background, and he's, he's looking at me. And he's, you can obviously tell that he's, he's almost crying again because he's seeing his own son, his firstborn. And, and I'm, I'm in the shape that I'm in. He says, my dad said to my mom, he says, well, he's our son. Like, we can't leave him like this. Look at him. And my mom says, fine, if he gets clean he can stay here. And so I had to make the decision that night to, to stay there and get clean and, and not use. And so three days went by, I went through withdrawals. I was trembling. I was shaking. I, I wasn't eating still. And after three days, I, this was the turning point for my life. I looked at my phone and there were voice messages and text messages of everybody who wanted me to come back to that old life. Mm-hmm. And I shattered my phone in an instant. Wow. And Good move. Day, so you didn't do any kind of formal treatment. You just stopped. Wow. Old turkey. That's, that's, uh, that's quite amazing. Cause you were doing methamphetamine pretty regularly, right? Mm-hmm. That was your drug of choice. 
Yes, that was pretty much all I was doing. A little cocaine, yeah. basically methamphetamines, but yeah. Yeah, statistics say that only 11% of people ever get a meth addiction. Yeah. So it's very rare. Yeah. That you but, did it without any sort of treatment. Um, wow. So you just basically just had kind of the love of your family and God looking after you at that point. Yeah, I had an encounter with the Lord. And so when I, when I had the encounter with the Lord, uh, everything started to change. Now, here's the deal. Things didn't happen overnight, right? So I had to figure out who Aaron was again. I went through anxiety and depression and because all I knew was being high. So being sober was a, a, was a new thing for me, but I knew that I didn't want to go back to that old life. I had so much fear in my heart. I didn't want to go back to that old life. And so I started, you know, working again, just again, back to some dead end jobs. And, um, but I started praying a little bit and, you know, I didn't put the pieces together (laughs) because I went from a drug addict to being in the middle of a devil's den, which is complete darkness in that place. I mean, so dark, you couldn't see the silhouette of your hand in front of your face. It was that, that evil. I mean, I saw demons and I've seen, and I've heard chatter and all kinds of different things, but I went from a drug addict to crying out to God in the middle of a drug house. And I want you to understand the, 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 the analogy here. I'm in this drug house, a wicked, wicked man. And I cried out to the Lord and I asked if he was real, that he would come into my life and change it forever. Three days later, I was getting kicked out of the drug house. And then here I am now, you know, a clean man. So it was really my resurrection was crying out dead and buried. And on the third day, the Lord kicked me out. He knew that I could not get out of that situation. There's no way possible. That's what hopelessness is. It's when you come to a point in your life where you feel like there's no way out. Point of no return. Yep. Yep. You know, I, I, I'm going to make just a quick comment and then I want to, you know, I want to get into what you're doing now and, you know, the, the various groups you've formed and also the books you've written. But, um, for listeners, if you think that God has deserted you because you are a drug addict, You could look at Aaron and you could look at how far south he went in terms of manufacturing and selling and everything he was doing. And if God was willing to help him, he's willing to help you too. Just making a plug there for anybody listening. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I'm sitting in my living room, my parents' house, and... My mom worked in the medical field. She says, uh, hey, what do you think about the medical field? I said, eh, what about it? And so she says there's this phlebotomy class, and uh, it's where basically you stick people with needles, right, and then you draw blood for laboratory results and stuff like that. And uh, so she says there's some classes. Maybe you should get into those classes. I said, sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And so I went through phlebotomy school. It was a few months long. After that, I got a job at BioLife Plasma Services, which I don't know if you know where that's I don't know if you guys have a plasma center in your, in your neighborhood or not, but probably. Yeah. Anyways. So it's a place where you go to get plasma for medications and things like that. So I'm there and there's these nurses and I said, well, what do you guys do? And they said, well, Aaron, we save lives and we help people. And it was that moment that I knew that that's what I wanted to do for my life. And so I went to school. I became a registered nurse in 2008. Um, time went by. I did emergency medicine I've done ICU. I've done all those different things. And I started to understand there was a calling for my life. 
I understand that I had purpose because see, I used to be a life destroyer and now I wanted to be a lifesaver. And so I was able to minister to people in these emergency rooms, addicts and, and drunks and all kinds of different things and tell them my story and people just being transformed in the process. And then the Lord told me, he says, I want you to go back to school. And so I went back to school again. I ended up getting my master's in 2017. Uh, I am now a board certified nurse practitioner. So it just shows you the distance that God can take you go from going from a drug addict to a phlebotomist to a registered nurse. And now I'm a nurse practitioner wow. and I work in family medicine. I take care of people. I diagnose, I treat, I prescribe legally. I can prescribe drugs. And so, and people ask me all the time, well, does those cravings or, or that old life, does it ever come? Do you ever, do you ever have those moments? And I said, absolutely not. Because you see, I became a son when I started to understand that God was in my life and the new life I have, the old has passed away and the new has come. And so here I am now fulfilling in my purpose. That's awesome. And you have different organizations and different, can I call them ministries? Is that the way, is that a good term to use? Tell us yeah, a little so bit about that. Sure. So they're ministries slash nonprofits. So, um, so I gave my life to the Lord in 2012. So this is, so you understand I'm 38 years old. I came out of addiction at age 20. So I've been clean 18 years. Wow. So that's there, really there very is, well done. I'm just going to say that's very, very well done. Thank you. So that's 18 years of, you know, a process of being transformed. You know, it didn't, it took me some time to understand that the Lord and the timeline of everything started lining up. Oh my gosh. I cried out to God in the middle of a drug house. And here I am. This is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence at all, but it's a God-given destiny. So anyways, um, gave my life to the Lord in 2012. Uh, things started happening to me. Um, I went to this event. It was an evening program. And I went to this event at this church, but it wasn't a church service. It was like a, oh, a reenactment of a rapture, right? And so at the very end, they asked anybody who wanted salvation to come to the front or who just needed prayer. Well, I was on fire for God because I gave my life to him in 2012. And here we are three months later. I'm in that honeymoon stage, right? Because you got people that are in that honeymoon stage of, I found the Lord. And then, yeah, man, I'm all, I want to do everything. And I'm standing at the front of this building, not trying to pray for people. Cause I'm wanting to like do whatever it was that God had for me to do. I was just excited like a little child. And I'm standing at the front, and this is really just kind of a supernatural moment as well. And the pastor is still up there on the microphone, and there's like all these people on the floor like getting prayed for. And I'm like the only one standing next to my friend. And the pastor is talking on his microphone, and his voice goes out. And I'm like looking at my buddy, and I'm looking back to the front. I'm going, man, someone needs to turn up his microphone because it's not working. I, he's on the microphone talking, but you can't hear a word he's saying. And it wouldn't be, but the moment I said that, this rush of wind came up from right behind me. And I said, that's weird. I said, I'm not cold, but I feel something there. And I'm looking around this church, and there's like 60-foot vaulted ceilings. There ain't no air conditioning units next to me. And as I'm processing this, the wind gets stronger. And I just, my eyes filled with tears. I looked to my buddy, and he said, Aaron, are you okay? And I go, dude, he's here. Like God is tangibly touching me right now. So he grips me, he grabs me and I'm like sizzling bacon in his arms. I'm like, Ooh, like I'm just like full blown gone. Right. 
So that goes on for a three minutes, five minutes, something like that. And then the intensity went away and I had this heat, the best way I can describe it, it's pure euphoria. It was peace and joy that I'd never had in my entire life, like higher than any high I'd ever been. And I was running around this church like a madman going, how can nobody want this? How can nobody want this? <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? And I did that for like an hour. And so we get in the car and my friends are like, dude, you're different. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on, man, but I just feel so good right now. And it was like, they said I was like glowing or something like that. But <laughs> anyways, so three months pass and I'm in church and I'm in the youth ministry, like hanging out with, I was a, a leader in the young adult ministry at my church and I heard a voice. And this is about three months after I had that encounter. And the voice said, I need Aaron, I need you outside these four walls. And I'm sitting there like, wait a second. Whoa, whoa. Like I'm where I'm supposed to be. Who said that? And I'm looking around the church and nobody's paying attention to me. You know, I mean, I'm just, and so for three months, I heard this voice only in church, get outside those four walls of the church. And I'm like, I'm telling my wife, I'm like, babe, you need to pray for me or, or something. Cause either Satan's out to get me or I'm back in that fear mode. Someone's talking about me. So my buddy calls me up and he says, Aaron, I believe that the Lord spoke to me. He's, he wants me to grab you and we're supposed to go to the streets and feed people. And so I'm like, that moment where you knew that you knew that you knew that's what you're supposed to do. And I said, yeah. And so he came over to our house. We stacked up 30 sack lunches of sandwiches, a big cookie, some chips. It was uh, December of 2014. It was cold outside. And we hit the streets with these 30 sack lunches. And we pulled into this alleyway. And there were all these homeless people and poor people waiting to receive a meal. And I looked at my friends and, I, and my wife and I said, all right, guys times now it's time to get out of this vehicle and i get out of the vehicle and these people like bum rush me right i have all these all this food and we had some coats and things like that and uh they were, were handing them food and they started asking for prayer and i started praying for people and like ears started opening up and backs started getting healed and i stepped back out of the crowd because i'm like i'm overwhelmed at this moment <laughs> And I heard that voice again. And he said, Aaron, this is what I've called you to. And it was the moment that God called me into ministry. And so we were feeding out of, uh, out of the back of our vehicles for the next few months, uh, just loving people. People were coming to Christ. People were getting healed. Crazy, crazy stuff. And all we had was like hot cocoa and some sandwiches <laughs> out of the back of our car, right? Like it was church, but in the streets. And, the, and, and God told me, he said, you need to find a central location to feed these people. And I'm like, okay. And so we pull around towards a park where all the homeless shelters are at down here in Joplin, Missouri. And it was a central park where, you know, some homeless people came to hang out. And so the first week, you know, we had 30 people show up once word got out. You know, the second week, 50 showed up. The third week, 75 people showed up. The fourth week, 100 people showed up. I mean, it just grew and grew and grew to where hundreds of people were coming every Sunday, not only to receive a meal, but hear the word of God and get prayed for and have miracles happen. And it become one of the first street churches here in, in Missouri. Wow. Pretty cool. What a great story. Yeah. Hey, if people want to know more about your story, where can they go? Are you, do you have some sort of online presence they can find? I do. So I have a website and it's authoramgarcia.com. 
Uh, you can go on there. You ha can check out my bio, check out the ministries. Uh, you can also read my blogs, uh, my podcasts. I've also started a podcast called Burn Notice. And uh, yeah, just a place where you can come. If you want me to come to your city, love to come and speak to your church or any kind of organization events, things like that. So the Lord started telling me, he says, after I was going through all these things, he says, you need to write a book. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I got to see in English. Like, you got the wrong guy. You need to pick somebody else. Because he said, <laughs> That's funny. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like me? Wrong right book? guy. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and uh, man, that went on for like three months. Aaron, I need you to write a book. And he told me, he says, if you write the book, I will take it places you've never dreamed of before. And wrestled, wrestled, wrestled with God. And my wife after church one day, she goes, I'm really tired. Uh, I'm going to lie down, which was really kind of uncommon for her at this time in our lives. And she laid down and I looked over at the bar at our, in our kitchen and my laptop happened to be open that day. And the voice of God told me now, and I walked over to this laptop and I just, <laughs> the first like four chapters of my life. And that would go on to getting editors that would go on to getting uh, book designers. And I wrote my first novel back in, uh, I'm sorry, memoir back in 2015. And it's called Coincidence or God. And it's the autobiography of, of the things that I've shared with you today. Wow. So the book started taking off. It became an Amazon bestseller, just being self-published. Obviously God had a plan for it. <laughs> Not only that, but we have now co-founded a uh, ministry called Not By Coincidence Ministries, where to this day we've, and it just started last year, we've gotten over 500 books of that book into the prison system. Wow, um, that's, that's quite something. Yeah, and it's just setting men free. We get it to chaplains. Uh, we have, I think now, at least six states and over like 30 prisons that have received this, this book. And it's just, it's transforming men's lives. They're understanding that they're not alone. Like, and they can relate to my story because addiction does the same thing to everybody. Right. You know? Right. And so, yeah. So I wrote my first book in 2015. And then he says, uh, a couple of years later, he says, I want you to write another book. And I'm like, ah, here we go again. And uh, I, I was getting a vision. And it was like walking into a movie theater. And it said burn notice on there. And I'm like, that is a weird name. And he says to me, he says, you need to journal the next three years of what I'm about to do in your life. And I just started journaling, journaling miracles, journaling the movements like the SOS ministries. That's what we called it. It was SOS ministries serving on the streets. And that's what became our first nonprofit. But many miracles happened out of that. Many, many movements happened out of that. And so Burn Notice birthed in 2018. Actually, I self-published it. And I knew the message had weight and I wanted to get the book into more people's hands. And so I started sending out, I started investigating, how do you get published? How do you get traditionally published? How do you get signed? Uh, Cause there, I was reading everything that says it's impossible to get signed. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, all things are possible with God. So uh, I started, I made a book proposal. I sent it out to literary agents, uh, which are pretty much scouts for publishing companies. They're the ones that pitch those books to the publishing companies and I got rejection after rejection after rejection. And then uh, I waited a couple months and God said, do it again. 
And so I put out a whole bunch more book proposals to different, you know, literary agents of my genre. And I got a, I got an email one day from a guy out of Colorado not, named Michael Eberling. And he's a big, a big uh, literary agent for publishing companies. He's gotten like desperate housewives signed and all kinds of different things. And he says to me in the email, he says, I believe that your book has great potential for great reach. I have a publishing company. I want to pitch this to, would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. That afternoon, I got a message from the CEO of Morgan James Publishing out of New York. He says, hey, I talked to Michael. Uh, I want to hear more about your book and about your life. And so I had an interview. It was a 30-minute interview on the phone um, a week later. And I, I, I didn't try to pitch my book. What I did was I shared my heart. I shared my life. And I shared about what this book is going to do for the body of, of Christ, for people not just believers, but non-believers to understand there is a real God that's out there that has, does tangible things that can't even be understood nor seen with the human eye. And he interviewed me. He says, okay, I'm going to pitch this to my, my, my team, my administration, because mm-hmm. they have to make, make, um, uh, you know, they have to pitch it because there's all kinds of different authors that are trying to get signed. So let me give you the impossibility in this. The literary agent, gets 500 plus book proposals a month. He literally spends maybe three minutes per book proposal to look it over before he trashes it and moves on to the next thing. Morgan James Publishing only signs 150 authors every single year. Of the 150, they only sign sign 25 faith-based authors. And so they pitch it to the administration. And wouldn't you know, a week later, I got signed. Wow. So pretty cool. Great story. I mean, what a great story. I mean, truly, truly inspirational. Aaron, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story today. You, 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 it is, it's a story of inspiration and it really, um, anyway, it's, it's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. So quickly, if you had one, just one message to give to the people who listen, whether they're um, friends and loved ones of addicts or whether they're addicts, just one message, what would it be? I would let them know that their life is meant something, that they have value. I believe that many people don't feel like they have value. And the Bible talks about sparrows of the air and how they don't do anything besides fly and eat and the, and the, and the flowers of the field. You know, they toil and spin, but they don't even produce any kind of cloth or anything like that. And he says, how much more value, valuable are you than sparrows and, and the flowers of the field? My life is not a coincidence. And the, and the listeners now, their life is not a coincidence. You know, we, what happens is we get off the, wrong, off the right path and onto the wrong path. So all God is looking for especially through my testimony that they're hearing now is nothing more than a shift. He's looking for your eyes to get off the wrong, off the wrong path and back onto the right path. And he's wanting to walk with us side by side. And I hear people tell me, well, I've cried out to God and I've asked for help and I'm still stuck in my addiction. Well, my question really is, is do we truly have a heart that's ready to leave the old life and embrace the new one? And so I just want to let people know they have value. They have purpose. They have destiny, and you 
you just need to come to a conclusion that God is good and that he's wanting to, to see the best in us. He wants the best for us. And no drug could ever take that place once you've tasted that the Lord is good. That's so. awesome. Aaron, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to just um, give you a message, and that is um, Aaron told us that if you go to his website, and it's author, A-U-T-H-O-R-A-M, for Aaron Michael, Garcia, G-A-R-C-I-A, so it's authoramgarcia.com. There's a pop-up that comes up on his website that asks for your email. If you give him your email, he will send you a free electronic version of his first book, Coincidence or God, because there's way more to his story than we were able to tell today. But thank you so much for listening. If you have a loved one that needs help, needs treatment, please get them into treatment today. If you don't know where to send them, you can call our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, at 866-231-5924. Even if you end up going to a different treatment program, you can call Narconon Ojai, and they will help you. They will help guide you to your next step. 866-231-5924. Thank you for listening and watching. We will be back again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.